You're listening to Fundshag. I'm Ross Butler, and today I'm speaking with Andros Payne, Managing Partner of Humatica, a data-driven consultancy that helps companies identify the behavioural and organisational blockers to growth so they can benefit from ever-increasing economies of scale by proactively managing operational complexity. Whether you're a private equity value creation professional or a business executive who wants to break your company through to the next level of growth, this one's for you. Andros, welcome to Funshack. I'm really looking forward to this discussion because it's on a topic that seems to have so much value potential that gets left on the table. And it's also really relevant to uh, private equity value creators for sure, but also anyone that wants to build their business from you know medium to large, from good to great. And we're going to talk about organizational effectiveness. And the thing about these types of topics, I think, is that often they're either one of two things. They go down the kind of the, the cultural leadership route and become a little bit wishy-washy, or they can do the opposite of that and they can become about technique, you know, like pricing strategy or whatever. And when we met up a few months ago and you showed me what Humatica does, it really impressed me because I think what you've done with organizational effectiveness is that you'd applied a methodology that was transparent um, to something that I think most of the time people think is just too human and too messy to take a kind of a, a scientific analytical approach to. And so I wonder if you could begin by just basically telling us what Humatica does and how you do it. Well, thank you, Ross. It's a pleasure to be here today and talk about this topic, which Humatica has focused on for 20 years. It is a complex topic. It's like peeling the onion. Organizations are complex systems, and they have many different drivers of their effectiveness. I think the complexity is, however, no excuse for not really breaking down these different drivers and their effect on the overall effectiveness of the organization. So that's what Humatica has been doing, is really deconstructing what are these drivers? Are they, you know, simple behavioral patterns of senior leaders and the way that they communicate, which obviously has an impact on the overall effectiveness of the organization? Or are they more hard factor things like the structure that affects the behaviors and also the organizational effectiveness? So a lot of different drivers and categorizing these and also quantifying them is what we see brings transparency and also an objective discussion about where are the needles in the haystack that we need to resolve in order to get the most out of an organization. So what are the, let's cut to the conclusion. What are the drivers? What did you find? Well, the drivers, they're very diverse. Uh, Clearly, uh, the organizational structure has a major impact on the way people interact in an organization to make and execute decisions, which is the underlying driver of the ability to grow value in dynamic competitive markets your ability collectively as an organization to connect the dots before a competitor's organization and to allocate resources and take steps to realize opportunities and avoid risks before the competition is really what is driving value creation, and especially in private equity-backed companies. What got you there won't get you there. The plans are much more ambitious today than they were 10, 15 years ago. And it requires that the organization does something different and sets itself up for executing to accelerate its revenue growth or work more efficiently. So the drivers of that are, they're categorized into a few different categories. Uh, One is really around the fundamentals of what's the org structure, what are the uh, organization of different 
roles in the company? Are they clear to people? What's the physical setup even? And what's the underlying IT infrastructure that allows the right collaboration to be able to connect the dots, make decisions, and execute them quickly? So that's at one level is really foundational elements. Also, the way that we hire in people, the way that we allocate uh, objectives, where we measure their performance, that also plays a key role. The whole typical human resource type processes or talent management processes. And beyond that, also the management processes and the quality of the management processes that are in place. Management processes are interesting because they're institutional knowledge. A manager brings that based on the experience they've had in the past, how they should manage a sales force, how they should manage a product development process. These things have otherwise not been codified. So you have a broad spectrum of quality and management processes that are defining how process, how decisions are made and executed. Mm. And then finally, it's really the quality of the interactions, the behaviors between people who are working in teams, departments, divisions, in the mm. end companies, in their ability to exchange information, connect the dots, make choices, activate resources to implement, and then feedback and control loops. And that, and that really, I would say, most people categorize that as simply culture. Mm. But what is important is to select out of all the behaviors which could define culture, those that are driving the ability to make and execute decisions. How have you done that? Because anyone, I could, or a management consultant could come up with that, that list, laundry list of things that are, that are drivers. And maybe you did, you had them as hypotheses 20 years ago, but where are you now? Correct. Yeah. Uh, what's important is how have you actually been able to measure these things? So with regard to management processes, truly codifying what best practice management processes look like in all functions and for different industries, different management processes are critical. So uh, this is something that we as Humatica have done is codify what best practice management processes look like. This allows us to ask very simple questions managers that are non-threatening and let them explain the management process that they have established and that they think is needed to be able to execute a value creation plan. And they may do that with great pride in what they've developed. However, the maturity of the management process that they have developed may not be adequate for executing a new value creation plan based on our understanding of what best practice in that situation looks like. So that is a toolkit that is the codification of what best practice management processes look like that helps to quickly identify where do we have immature processes given where the company needs to go. That's one key tool. Can I just ask, how, how do you establish best practice? What we're doing is identifying where we have immature management processes, which are outliers. Sorry, yeah. could I rephrase my question? Yeah. Not how do you establish best practice, but how, how do you how do you find out what the best practice benchmark is? How do you know what's subpar? Yeah, that is because over the years we have focused on codifying management processes. So over all the projects that we've done, which is roughly 400 projects in hundreds of buyouts, we have seen examples of absolutely best practice management processes and systematically codified these catalog uh, them over time. So you've got this database of what Correct. code looks like. Exactly. And that allows us to work from that database to identify, okay, where do we have a firm or a department that is nowhere near adequate in terms of the management process that's established? And that can be simple things like 
a sales organization which has no sales support through a CRM. I mean, this is the most basic mm -hmm. thing, but mm -hmm. um, these are the areas where we identifying these outliers where the immaturity of the process is clearly not indicating it's not adequate for executing a value creation plan that you have. So that's one tool. Uh, another tool is behavioral benchmarking. So we've really codified the specific behaviors that take place in teams and organizations that are driving this collective ability to make and implement decisions. So these are generally best practice behaviors that you find in teams. We can give you some examples. Our action items documented before uh, in meetings that we have, commitments that people make, are these followed up on? Do meetings have agendas? These are very basic behaviors. Obviously, outstanding leaders, they enforce and bring in these behaviors in the teams that they're leading. But there's a huge variance, and some leaders may not feel comfortable asking someone to verbally commit to an action item in front of other people. But if you don't do that, then the next time you show up, it mm. won't be done, most likely. Mm. Mm. So it's these kinds of very specific behaviors that are driving the ability to, of a group to make and mm. execute decisions that we have codified over the 20 years. And we have a database with a Gaussian distribution for these best <laughs> practice behaviors. And that allows us, through a simple survey technique, to bottom-up benchmark the quality of behaviors in every single team and to identify outlying dysfunctional behaviors in a team uh, because the behaviors are so concrete that we're measuring, we can tie those negative outliers to specific improvement tips for the leader of that team that they right. can implement and improve the performance of their team. So this applies to teams. Does it apply to individual officer positions as well? It does. Essentially, every team that has a minimum of three people in it, just for the protection of the anonymity of any individual responses, uh, then we can have a statistically significant benchmark on the quality of these behaviors driving the ability to make and execute decisions for every single team, that is, for every single leader Okay, at all levels. So could you give me an example of a study that you've done where someone's had an aha moment, either about themselves as an officer or about their team and, ha and how it works. Yeah, happy to do so, Ross, because uh, this is absolutely insightful transparency that most people don't have when they're confronted with these hard facts about the behaviors that, for example, a leader is creating in the teams that they're leading. That in itself can contribute to a significant behavioral change of the leader to improve their performance. Mm. So, uh, yeah, we recently had a case where a company that was having multiple separate business units, a vertically integrated software firm, and uh, some challenges with bringing new products to market uh, and slower decision-making uh, that was inhibiting their ability to uh, bring these new uh, updates to market. So with doing this behavioral benchmarking, it became clear that there was a real concentration of the decision-making, upward delegation of decision-making to the most senior executive. That is the uh, decisions which should be delegated, which should have been made at a lower level, were being upward delegated, and that took too much time to actually make a decision. Now, when you have the statistically significant evidence for all the direct reports to the CEO, 
that there are three to 5% outlier on a, a probability distribution of that behavior. So it's significant outlier. Then that in, in itself was a wake up call and really a realization that more delegation was needed to enable the rest of the team mm. to make the right decisions faster and be able to bring features more quickly to market. There's kind of two facets to this, I think. One is finding out what the problem is and the other is is kind of objectively identifying it. Because I kind of think, so the traditional way of doing this, and this is your starting point, is a survey, just asking people what they think. And my limited experience of working in organizations is people tend to know where the dysfunction is and what the problem is. The difficulty is that it feels just like their opinion and and kind of what are you going to do about it, particularly if it's sensitive, like, you know, my opinion and yours, you're a bad boss because that's not, that's, that's not constructive. And so sometimes you know what the problem is. You just need an objective way of articulating it. How often actually do you, do, does your methodology find problems that people actually didn't know exist? It's a great question. And actually, there are two outcomes. One is normally there was a suspicion but because of imperfect information, asymmetric information about the quality of behaviors and the quality of the management processes, it couldn't be pinpointed. Mm. Yeah. So there's a real confirmation in hard facts that indeed a suspected issue was in fact an issue. Simultaneously, there are also cases where because of this asymmetric information disadvantage that senior leaders have and also private equity sponsors and the quality of behaviors, they're very often completely unexpected issues, which can be uncovered with this kind of approach. And in some extreme cases, even malfeasance. Private equity managers, they infamously have one button to press, and that is to change the management team. And they don't like to do it, but it's kind of like that's a key lever and always has been. And you mentioned kind of pinpointing a problem. I did, I've got to confess, I've read your real, latest Real Deals article. I do do some research for these podcasts, you know. And, and you mentioned the cost of changing management. Uh, now, surely, if you've got, if you're, a, if you're able to pinpoint a problem, then maybe you can offset that and see if you can resolve it. And that's surely preferable. Absolutely. Especially in markets where the IRR is really important in how fast we can realize a reasonable return. Because if we have to replace a manager, mm. that causes delay. Mm. Yeah, We normally understand that we have to replace the manager after giving six to 12 months of uh, experience. Yeah. And then the recruitment process and then onboarding. And it's also not without risk to bring in somebody. And what do we, what do we want from a, an experienced manager? What we're buying is their competence to be able to align all these organizational drivers Mm. to execute the plan. Yeah. We're expecting that they bring the institutional knowledge with them of what best practice management processes look like in the key areas. So if we can pragmatically identify the underlying management process or behavioral issues, make that transparent, fact-based approach, very objective, then we give the manager a chance to focus on those particular things which are preventing them from being successful. And we've seen tremendous cases of managers who have embraced the transparency, genuinely, changed their behavior in some cases significantly, immediately, I mean, the, the cost, the return on investment of that kind of behavioral change in a senior leader 
is, is enormous because they can do it from one day to the next if they're aware of what the issue is and what kind of problems that's causing in their organization. So skip level communications is a concrete example. A manager that doesn't do any skip level communications in their organization runs a risk of getting isolated in the information that they're are you speaking yeah. to people that aren't his direct yeah, reports? Skip, exactly. Right, right. Yeah, or listening to them uh, uh, yeah. in particular. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's these kinds of uh, simple things that can have a huge impact on on the organization as a whole. Uh, and it's much preferred to wholesale change of a leader. Mm. In some cases, that is the only option. However, as you rightly say, if you can avoid it through transparency, uh, and an understanding mm. of where the bottlenecks are specifically, that's fantastic. Implementing a new management process is not rocket science. If a management team can be made aware of what best practice in an, perhaps even another industry, but same kind of challenge, yeah, then they can adopt it quickly. See, the other thing is changing management. It seem, it's, a, it's a very blunt tool. And kind of inherent in it is, is the admission that you don't actually know what the problem is. And so just changing everything, well, it changes everything and maybe that will fix it. Um, but, but it's kind of a risk because maybe it's not like private equity, manage, uh, private equity firms tend to have weak management in the first place. They're all strong managers, but they might have a few blind spots. There might be things that are just difficult to, to identify. And so, yeah, surely targeting the problem is identifying it at least and giving that person a chance. Makes sense. Yeah. Oh, you're absolutely spot on. And I, I would say over the last 20 years, as there's been much more competition in private equity and the value creation plans have systematically become more challenging for management teams, this topic of what got you there won't get you there. Yeah. That is that a management process, which may have been fit for purpose in a mm. first uh, buyout, initial buyout, for the secondary, where they're going to expand internationally and grow the scope of the company through M&A, then there are certain management processes which the success, previously successful management had just not gotten exposure to. Yes. And that's where pinpointing, as you say, where exactly are the issues in the way things are being managed, behavioral traits, allows you to focus on those and also improve them without having to wholesale change the management. And of course, I'm thinking primarily of like the, the tops, the senior leadership. But actually, you, as, as you kind of mentioned, you go deeper into right down into middle management. Is that what? what yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. this was also one of the insights is that that's where the rubber really hits the road is mm. in the middle management. Um, because uh, the senior executive, that's a limited set of people. Uh, if you can change that set fairly quickly, has a huge impact on the organization, mm. be positive or negative, or they can change their behavior. That's relatively simple at the senior level because of a limited number of people. But when you go to hundreds and hundreds of middle managers that have to translate whatever that change is at the senior level into frontline behavioral change in order to get the benefits, that's where the rubber hits the road. So being able to provide transparency to middle managers at every level, every location, every function on how they can improve their management and leadership uh, behaviors we see as one of the key catalysts to accelerate the whole change process and also de-risk the implementation of the value creation plan. I mean, private equity firms tend to be fairly leanly resourced and their relationship tends to be with the uh, a board level and with the senior management. So the idea that you can influence for the better uh, middle management is great, but our private equity teams, it, it still requires presumably some form of expertise internally 
do you think that private equity firms are they are they investing in that kind of resource? Do they have that kind of resource? Absolutely, they have been investing in it in operating teams and operating partners who many times have leadership experience in the past and really are able to understand the implications of uh, strategic changes on how the organization needs to perform, what's expected of managers. And I think that's been a significant change in private equity over the 20 years since Humatica was founded is not unexpected, mm, uh, mm. but a steadily more assertive approach of the funds to helping the management teams to succeed. And, and once you've identified these problems, um, I mean, it's one thing knowing, knowing the problem, but then you've kind of got to do something about it and, and change. Is that where you kind of wash your hands of things? Or <laughs> Well, many consultants do wash their hands of things at that point, Ross. But um, interestingly, when looking at the knowledge organization and how it's functioning, the biggest challenge is to find the weakest links. That is the biggest challenge, yeah? And that's where our analytics are very helpful. These weakest links can be such simple things in the end. As I said, example of just changing the communications pattern of a senior leader. If they're made aware of it, they can change quickly. So the actual resolution of many of the issues that we find in organizations is actually not that difficult mm. once people are made aware of it. Mm. Obviously, if you're going to reorganize an organization, if a structural change is required in order to get the right kind of interactions in the company, then that's a bigger that's a bigger task. And that is where, yes, when it comes to large-scale organizational changes, that's where Humatica has developed competencies over the years in, in doing that in a risk-mitigated manner. Notwithstanding all of that, there's still presumably some kind of sensitivity or psychological aversion to having, if you're a CEO, particularly if you're like, a, you know, powerful one with a large stake, um, inviting someone in to benchmark you against all CEOs is still slightly nerve-wracking. Now, if you're a quality player, if you're an A player, you want that kind of thing. Um, but presumably there is still that barrier. I mean, I've never asked you that. Have you ever done it to yourself? Yes, we have, actually. Well, we obviously eat our own medicine <laughs> in Humatica. We, we apply the same approach within Humatica. Uh, but you're absolutely right that because this alignment of the different drivers of organizational effectiveness to execute a plan, that's traditionally been something that sponsors private e in private equity, as well as leaders themselves, say, hey, that's my job. That's what I'm responsible for. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, there is some sensitivity to having a advisor come in who's going to take an objective look at this and how they're doing mm. and these diverse drivers. Uh, but we've definitely seen there's, you can divide the senior executives into two camps. The one camp, which has been the most successful from an investment standpoint, has embraced these tools as a vehicle for accelerating the behavioral change in their organizations that they know is needed. The other type of senior executive is very apprehensive and concerned about this transparency. And I think that has been really a litmus test also over the years from a sponsor standpoint of what kind of senior executive and leadership is going to be successful in implementing a new value creation plan. Because clearly our experience over the years has been that this openness to transparency and using it as a catalyst to drive change in their organizations at a faster pace, that 
has been a characteristic of the most successful CEOs that we've worked with over the years. That's interesting because that's kind of that's not a competency thing. That's an ethos thing. It's it's values. Very much. It is a very much an ethos thing, and it's because of this asymmetric information advantage on these kinds of more subtle, uh, soft factor topics that a senior executive may want to keep this under a lid mm. vis-a-vis the sponsor. Yeah. But that's really not a recipe for long-term success because there's no organization that can't improve. There's always a weakest link. Mm. Question is, what is it? How do we address it? Yeah, it, it is interesting because uh, it's almost like you're, you're dealing in a bottom-up way with culture because w- what you're doing effectively will, will hit culture eventually. Um, by changing behaviors, whereas often culture is is kind of a top-down process. And so over time, what you're doing will change the culture. Absolutely. Yeah. It will change the culture. I would say culture is, however, a very broad term. Yes. It's a set of repeated, unique behaviors mm. that an organization shares. Mm. And that could be things like, do we allow work from home or not? Mm. But at that level... It's not really actionable. So selecting out specific behaviors out of the whole set of behaviors that define culture that are just driving the ability to make and execute decisions, those are the specific aspects of culture which are directly related to value creation. Mm. And that is much more actionable and much more valuable than simply defining culture broadly. Yeah, so there there is another aspect to culture which which does kind of sit on top of that, I think, which is more like it's something like related to uh, values and almost kind of morale. So it's like, what's the point of all this? And, you know, uh, the point of a company is like economies of scale and getting people to cooperate and that creates value. But if it was just about economies of scale, com- there would be no, no, no upper limit to the size of a company and everything would just get huge. But, but there, there comes a breaking point where things become dysfunctional. And so the trick is to is to kind of oil the wheels to ensure that everything, so that you can uh, enjoy the benefits of the economies of scale at ever-increasing sizes. And for that, you kind of need a, a culture, an ethos that's that's coherent. So actually, I, I've only just thought of this, but my, my company is Communications Linear B, and we, we spend a lot of time at the front end talking to people about their values. Um, and what we're doing with that is we're not like sitting down with the partners with a whiteboard just making up their values. Hmm. What we're doing is trying to work out what values already exist in the company and then expressing them and articulating them. And, and the, that's, a, that's kind of a function of behavior. And so we're at different ends of the spectrum, but it's the same, it's the same kind of spectrum. You're looking for the weaknesses and we're kind of looking for the strengths. Yeah, you know? <laughs> but you're, you're spot on here um, on this, uh, Ross, because values, especially in the knowledge-based information age organizations, where we're relying on the voluntary collaboration, voluntary compliance of people to work together Mm. to achieve a common goal. That's where values as a set of guardrails on behaviors, which enable that team to work effectively together is really important. Mm. It's not telling everybody exactly how they have to work because you can't do that Mm. with knowledge workers because they are executing on logical thinking, structured approach, good communications. They need freedom. Yeah. But we need to get them all 
yeah. operating in a relatively similar way in order to be able to achieve mm. something together. I'd say yeah. it's, it's not just guardrails, it's guardrails and kind of a, a, a defining vision at Clearly. the front as well. Clearly, well, Clearly. that's where a sense of purpose is yeah. becoming much more important. But these are all elements and drivers of organizational effectiveness of knowledge-based organizations. And I would say you're spot on that there are, especially with knowledge-based organizations where you're relying on the interaction between different specialists that have specific know-how and pattern recognition, either from their academic training or their experience to work together, that you truly have diseconomies of scale in their ability to work effectively together, the larger the organization is. This goes up with each person that's added. It's a geometric, the complexity goes up geometrically, just yeah. from a mathematics standpoint. So without management processes, clear values, clear purpose, then it's very uh, logical that you start to get diseconomies of scale in the ability of that group to collectively work together, connect the dots, make decisions, good decisions together and execute them. I mean, this is the plight of large, large corporates that all want mon yeah. more entrepreneurial behaviors and cultures, but their processes have absolutely smothered mm. their ability to work really agile and competitively, uh, uh, col collaboratively. Well, from a private equity perspective, of course, it's always important to become go from an SME to a large business. But actually, as the industry is growing, it's going to have to look at buying ever larger businesses and apply private equity value creation techniques to those large, larger businesses. And so this becomes only ever more important. I mean, when you when you showed me the the, the graphical display of the the outcomes of your benchmarking exercise, I was like, well, this is... I mean, this is like kind of like the holy grail of private equity value creation because everything else you can talk about in very specific analytical terms, you know, from leverage right through to pricing and so on. This, this you can't, but now, but now you can. And so I suppose I was surprised that uh, the private equity industry isn't already all over this in a really analytical way. I don't think it is. I think it's still relatively uh, relying on something like intuition. Am I, am I wrong? No, you're absolutely right. But the private equity industry is a conservative industry in general. And I think these kinds of methodologies, tools, uh, some have embraced it. That's great. Uh, they've also gotten good benefits from doing that. But it does take time to understand how these concepts also fit together of system analysis and behavioral benchmarking and codifying specific management processes and how that can be used to identify real bottlenecks mm. and resolve them. Yeah. So, so what's, what's your background? Because you don't speak like uh, the average management consultant. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I take that as a great compliment. Uh, yeah, uh, diverse background, uh, but essentially systems analysis and system engineering, both as an electrical engineer who studied signal processing and as a mechanical engineer who studied control theory and things like feedback loops to control dynamic systems, like the system in an airplane that's flying in a turbulent environment, same sort of thing. You've got organizations that are flying in turbulent competitive environments, same sort of principles of uh, signal response, system response, uh, they apply, uh, obviously differently um, than directly in a tech purely technical technology system. It's like uh, an engineering yeah. mindset you're taking. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that is exactly what we've done. A very rigorous engineering mindset to breaking down 
the diverse drivers or inhibitors of organizational effectiveness, of which behavior between people is mm -hmm. critical, as well as the maturity of the management processes. But yeah, I think uh, from background, it's actually obvious what we do. If you've studied system engineering and you've worked with many different companies, both large firms and small firms, uh, and seen how differently people interact, quote, different mm -hmm. cultures, yeah. Yeah. that either enable them to act quickly before the competition or are completely debilitating and they can't change. And really putting hard facts around that is obvious. It's, it's a system analysis challenge. Yeah. So is everyone going to start doing it your way? I think the approach to benchmarking the productivity of knowledge organizations that we've developed is the only way to measure productivity of knowledge-based organizations. It's not the Frederick Taylor stopwatch in looking at productivity in mm -hmm. terms of traditional mm -hmm. approach, but rather what is the collective ability of an organization to connect the dots, make decisions and implement them better and faster than their competitors. And that is very much driven by specific behaviors, which we have now over the 20 years codified. Really cheeky question, but if this works so well, why don't you just do it yourself and buy up a load of <laughs> substandard companies? And it's a great question, Ross. Um, we have had cases where there are severely undermanaged firms that are non-core firms and have been able to apply these approaches. And thankfully, that has delivered exactly what we would have expected in a severely undermanaged company is rapid uh, turnaround and uh, benefits. So you've been so these kind of failing companies have been passed on to you, and you've been able to. That is correct. Do your magic with that them. is correct. Yeah, yes. yeah. I mean, just going back to my point about this being core to private equity, the other thing that that I feel is core to private equity that's exactly in this domain is is governance. People don't talk about governance a lot, at least when they're talking about private equity in the external world. But I kind of think that you could describe private equity as a as a as a system of governance. That's what it is. And, and this is uh, governance, not just between shareholder and executive, but between kind of executive and other layers of executive. So, uh, you know, I'm just, just want to kind of yeah. restate that point that this is fundamental. It's core. To it is. It is absolutely fundamental to success in any kind of market where you have limited resources and you're in competition with others in that market. And I agree with you completely that uh, one of the benefits of private equity that it's delivered to society is a superior governance structure that is entrepreneurial governance for, for example, companies that have kind of lost their way in proper governance through being part of a very large corporation or other reasons where, from where these companies came from. But installing proper governance is fundamental to being successful, systematically making and executing decisions, good decisions, uh, relies on good governance. And it's not just at the board level with the senior management, it's good governance in how are we managing our sales force? How are we making decisions about what kind of customers our sales team should actually go visit next week? How do we govern those decisions? Mm. Are we governing those decisions in a way that is superior to our competitors? Because if we are, we systematically have an advantage over them. Mm. And so, yes, 
governance ESG and the G element of ESG, clearly a, a huge topic and a huge topic that is going to be very sustainable for a long time because we're nowhere near having codified what best practice governance is in throughout yeah. organizations. I think Humatica is on that journey, but there's still a very long ways to go. Well, it is a huge topic and I'd love to talk more with you on it. Unfortunately, we're both a little bit pressed for time today, but that was a fascinating kind of introduction and insight to kind of a very different way of doing things. So thanks very much, Andros. Thank you, Ross. You've been listening to the Fund Shack podcast. It's the private capital channel for alternative investment professionals. This podcast was designed and produced by Linear B Group, a leading content marketing agency focused on financial and professional services. Thanks for listening.